Uh, I've always enjoyed working on employee systems. It's a kind of a philosophical and even theological belief. And I'm not hugely artistic, you know, I don't paint, but I'm more of a creative thinker. The work I do, I characterise it best as human-centred problem-solving. And welcome to The Common Creative. My name is Chris Meredith. And I'm Paul Fairweather. And we have an action-packed episode for you today. We'll be joined by an amazing Greg Ralph, UX lead for banker experience at ANZ Bank. But before we get into that, a quick word from our sponsors. Both Chris and Paul help companies embrace creativity in the workplace. For details of their online masterclasses, head to Eventbrite and search Paul Fairweather or Chris Meredith to find out more. Uh, Greg, a big welcome to the show. Thanks so much for joining us. Um, thank you for having me. I'm going to work on that amazing tag, but uh, it's lovely to be here. <laughs> Hi, Greg. Thanks for coming along. I, I want you to know we're feeling under a lot of pressure today, Greg, because you'll not only have a very important role in UX, that's user experience, the way people interact with people, with, uh, with the bank and its customers, but you're also a podcaster. You have a podcast, filmmaker, film watcher, so I'm not sure who's in the spotlight here. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'll, I'll give you marks we... at the end. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> hope we get bonus points for something. Uh, why don't we start there? Because I think when people hear that you work in a bank, there's a, there's a connection that people go, well, you must be a banker and you must wear boring clothes and have you know, not a very interesting life. And so um, and I know you're a designer first, rather than, and I don't think it's fair to call you a banker, even though you work at NZ. But tell us about the podcast. Where did that come from? And it's about movies. You're the film watcher part of Filmmaker Film Watcher. Um, where did that come from? How does that fit in? Well, my um, my co-podcaster, Richard Gregorio, who I call Ricardo, Ricardo and I have been friends for quite a few years. And he is an actor and filmmaker, and I'm neither of those things. But whenever we got together, we would just sit in a corner and talk about all the films we watched, the films we loved, and it was just always a great conversation. One day, Ricardo, who is about half a generation younger than I am, said, you know what, we should do this as a podcast. And I was, yeah, right. <laughs> I don't know that I'm a podcast generation, but alone a podcaster. Um, but he said, come on, come on, we should do it. And I thought, well, it's one of those doors. You open it and you see what's behind it. And I've loved it. It's been um, uh, an outlet for my creativity, I guess, in talking about films. And a lot of my creativity is around stories. So if a film is a great story, I love it. And I love talking about the story. And I've really learned to love uh, each film. We take it in turns to do a little overview of the film and then what we think of it. And then it becomes a conversation. And the sitting down and crafting of those summaries of the films and what I think about it, I find really um, enjoyable. It takes me a good hour and a half or so for each film to really think it through and hopefully craft that well. But I love doing that. And the other thing I love about it is that I would never have put myself forward as someone who had opinions to put into the public space that I thought anyone other than someone that I you know, know and love would want to listen to. And so for my self-confidence, it's been fantastic. It really has. But not something I ever would have gone into on my own. Greg, how long has it been going for? Um, we've been recording for five and a half years. Um, we release... 10 episodes a year, pandemic year's been an exception, and a Christmas episode. So um, 
all up, we so far have released episodes for just past 100 films, and we've got another oh, 20 or so in the can waiting to get edited and sent out there. So uh, five years, it's been a big part of my life and it's become a passion. I, I see you've got a, you know, a bit of a beard. Do you, uh, so you still see yourself taking over from um, David Stratton, maybe, uh, in a future generation? Well, I take slight at the bit of a beard, but um, we actually have made that comparison. Um, they would be my heroes in this space and Ricardo's as well, and we've talked about it. Uh, I've actually tried to convince him to drag up and we could do a publicity shot as Margaret and David because he doesn't have a beard, but um, I've yet to convince him. I think, I think it might be the, the big dangly earrings he's frightened of. Let, let, me, let, let me rephrase. Greg, you've got, a, you've got a, quite a handsome beard, but <laughs> compared to David Stratton's, it's, you know, it's a okay, little bit uh, maybe interesting. Now, I, I just wanted to pick up on um, Chris said about, you know, you don't dress like a, a banker, and I just wanted to note that you've got this beautiful um, shirt with uh, full lemons and cut lemons and, and leaves and stuff. Uh, it reminds me of a painting I did called uh, When Life Gives You Lemons. Uh, so uh, and I know that you're working from exactly. home still. Is that is that a is that a shirt that you would wear into the bank? Uh, look, I might wear it on a particular day. Uh, I have been known to dress up. I've done the full, um, you know, V for Vendetta outfit for a, you know a quiz night kind of function. Um, so probably not this particular shirt, but I'm not a suit and tie kind of guy. I never have been, um, and so I wouldn't wear this particular shirt. I mean, I wouldn't have anything against. It. I just probably wouldn't choose to. But you know, I wear short long sleeve shirts and jeans or you know canvas kind of trousers whatever i um you know it's interesting you mentioned clothing because one of my uh one of my milestones on my journey of create creativity in my professional space is i'm going back about 15 years and i was doing a project um for a particular organization where i was uh, a consultant but i was in there full time for you know uh, a couple of months or so and I remember at one stage, I spoke to my main client, Mark, and I used to wear in those days in particular, like a little um, collared jumper with the three little buttons over, you know, nice pants or something. And I said to him one day, uh, look, Mark, I just wanted to check that I'm wearing the right kind of clothes because a lot of people here do wear ties and, and, and suits and so on. And I'm not wearing that. Yeah, it's not my style. Is that okay? And he said to me, well, no, you're the creative. So when you dress like that, people know you're the creative. And I, I literally stopped in my tracks and thought, because I don't think of myself as being, you know, a creative. I think of myself who design things with a particular purpose in mind. You know, a lot of my design, certainly professionally, is very functional. And it really caught me up short because I didn't think of myself in those terms. Um, but I still wear the jumpers occasionally. So, so you're an imposter then, Greg. I mean, this, this podcast is called The Common Creative. And, and you're thinking, well, because I, I would love to know what a creative looks like then. What, not physically, but what, if you're not a creative, and by the way, I disagree with you strongly. We'll, we'll talk about that shortly. But <laughs> what is a creative if you're not a creative? Well, <laughs> I mean, you know, like a lot of people probably, I do have episodes of imposter syndrome. But I, I guess it, it, I mean, obviously it comes down to that idea of what do you mean by creative? So my knee-jerk response when I think of creative is artistic. And I'm not hugely artistic. You know, I don't paint. Um, I had piano lessons for a while and, you know, never practiced. It was terrible. But I'm more of a creative thinker. And a lot of my creativity, I would link less to art, whatever art is, and link it more to things like storytelling, people, and thinking about things in a different way. 
So, and, and, you know, great artists do that. Like Picasso is the obvious example. Picasso looked at, you know, painting and visual representation a very, very different way. And it, it, you know, people were, you know, amazed by that. And it changed the way we see the world. I look at things, I think, you know, in, in my strong moments, I look at things differently, but it's not painting. It's about the design of an experience or performing a task. Or I remember years ago, a friend of mine said to me, you know, Greg, you're the kind of person who would look into a cutlery drawer and work out three different ways to arrange it in a you know different, unusual kind of way. Now, I, I, I then hurry on to say, just to insult you, Chris, that he was an engineer. So maybe, you know, he was <laughs> impressed by anything that wasn't very conventional. Um, and apologies to my friend, Michael. But um, yeah, I, I think that's how I approach creativity. Um, well, Greg, I, I think that's interesting because that is, you know, obviously creativity and people do mistake uh, artistry for creativity. You know, I think Einstein had the uh, quote, you know, creativity is seeing the same things as everyone else but thinking differently. Um, just in terms of rearranging your drawer, I, I must have saw something I post somewhere where uh, someone asked how, you know, they had a series of open egg cartons and who were you when you had less eggs? You know, are you, you know, is it sort of random or is it always from one end? And some were patterns. And so now every time I finish the eggs, I create a pattern. Uh, and I think it's really interesting because I never, ever thought of it again. And it's quite amazing. You know, you can have an odd number and get a pattern or an even number because it, it's three rows. But anyway, that's on the well, side. Well, I, I, uh, I, I have to say that I'm also a bit of a wordsmith and a pedant. So, of course, it should be fewer eggs, not less eggs. Oh, sorry. Well, there you go. Um, Greg, tell us about your, you know, your, your, your history. Like, how, how did you end up uh, being in uh, AMZ? Well, I am originally an arts graduate, but I was doing things like English, a little bit of psychology. Uh, I did um, interdepartmental studies in 20th century European literary theory, somehow or other, and, and um, you know, a bit of stats and whatever else and French that I could cram into walk out for BA in the end. But it was all fairly aimless. And um, I was very fortunate that about a year after I graduated, I stumbled into a job uh, in a health and safety agency. And I was really inspired by the owner, Kate, who's a very good friend of mine, and another senior member of staff, Gabrielle. And Gabrielle was an ergonomist, you know, in ergonomics. And I thought she was wonderful and I wanted to be like her. And so I ended up studying ergonomics. But back then, and I'm talking, you know, <laughs> mid to late 80s, um, that I did ergonomics in a health and safety kind of space. But then I went um, overseas for a year and did some higher studies where I started to work in what we used to call human-computer interaction, HCI. Uh, and when I came back to Australia, I, I just happened to arrive home at a time when software usability was just starting to take off in Australia. So it was just historical accident. And through that, I moved into usability. Uh, a lot of my early work, and we're talking pre-web, pre-mobile kind of stuff, was in customer call centres, financial processing, uh, occasionally education or government, uh, very much a functional approach to how do we design this system so that people can actually use it, not get frustrated and not, um, uh, you know, make a mistake or something. So a very functional definition of usability. And uh, that quite suited me because I can be a very functional kind of guy. But also, uh, I've always most enjoyed working on employee systems. It's a kind of a philosophical and even theological belief that um, people's, some of people's greatest dignity comes through their work and their endeavours. And so we should be giving people tools that allow them to do their work well 
and not be frustrated or, you know, have their jobs de-enriched, if that's a word, um, in early web stuff. And then like the rest of the world, as, you know, the dot-com boom happened, there was a lot more work happening on, um, you know, websites and then eventually apps. And I've certainly done a lot of projects that are customer-focused. Um, but where I work at ANZ is that I lead the team that works on our banker systems and experiences. So at ANZ, where I've been for um, just on two years, if you uh, call up our contact center or if you walk into one of our branches or you see a mobile lender or one of our business bankers, whatever it is, they will be using um, one or more systems to meet your need. And so, I again, I just love being in that space and it was a job I was offered at ANZ, which is why I came, because most of my working life, I've actually been a consultant, not you know, an employee somewhere, including you know, being self-employed. But um, what we focus on is, first of all, how do we make sure the tools are produced and presented well functionally? But also, we take a, a broad view, and that is that by nature of the tools that we create and deliver out you know, to the branches and so on, we are actually designing the experience for our bankers and in turn, the experiences and the service they provide to our customers. So you might be familiar with um, a technique called journey mapping, where you will look at you know, a, a process. It can be quite a small type process or it can be very large. You know, it could be applying for a home loan. In other spaces, I've done it for um, the experience of migrating from one email platform to another as a consumer. And you look at what are the activities that happen, what are the goals that people seek to meet there, and often those things are done with a customer in focus. What we do within what we call our banker experience area is we do that kind of research and analysis where we're looking at both sides of the counter. So we will line up what's happening for the customer at that point, but also what's happening for the banker in the branch or the person in the contact center and what's happening for them. And you know, are we providing them with a good experience or not? Um, how can we not only transform this to remove any pain points, but in fact, build into fingers crossed, moments of delight so that it goes well, they meet their needs, you know, we make the sales that we want to make or, or provide the, the problem resolution we need to provide, you know, whatever the context is. Um, so that's, that's a space I really love being in. And yeah, the, the thing, yep. My question is kind of what's it really like? Because banks are notorious for having this, maybe I'm going back a few years now, but, but having this sort of approach which is you know we hold all the cards we know what's good for you and you little customer down there you can get what you're given and like it and and you're at that sort of difficult interface of trying to bring a bank like that into the kind of customer friendly interactive service oriented culture and so firstly have i put, have i painted the picture accurately and secondly what's it like being at that center point of dragging a big organization into that accessible good experience moments of delight kind of organization well i i don't see it as dragging first of all um i i have found yeah and i've been working in my space for quite a long time now i have found that companies organizations develop an appetite for our kind of stuff back when it was usability now with user experience and service design and so on that the appetite develops when something is happening fairly seismically in their industry. So one of the first big consumers of our kind of um, services were the telcos back in the um, 
you know, uh, mid-90s. So you had Telstra privatised, you had Optus and Virgin, whoever was coming on the scene, where um, a lot of our early work was with places like Telstra because they had to get the customer experience right. I think in banking, that's been happening for a long time across certainly the major banks in Australia that I'm aware of. Um, and I have done projects over the years for um, at least two of the big four for memory, um, obviously ANZ being one of them. And there is a need to change in our industry for a few reasons. I mean, an obvious one is in response to the Royal Commission. You know, the banking industry didn't come out as well from that as it would have liked. And there's a real focus on getting things right, not letting those mistakes of the past recur. There is a real um, shift in the industry as some of the disruptors come into play. And so um, you, you cannot do the same old, same old, because somebody else will be doing the new same, or <laughs> the, the new different, rather. And, and you're talking now about Apple or Google or... Well, you know, I was talking about... Coins or whatever. Uh, well, no, actually, I was thinking more of some of the players who are coming into transactional accounts and home loans. Um, so uh, the one that comes most to mind, and I'm sure I'll get this wrong, I think it's at 884600, um, which, is a, which is an up-and-coming uh, neobank in Australia. Um, but the third thing is that there is a real shift to concepts like financial well-being. So if you think you know how a bank works or you um, have in your mind some of the uh, old mindsets or stereotypes, um, certainly at ANZ, which is what I know, it's not like that. And there is a real desire to get things right, not only in terms of a kind of a hygiene, let's not make mistakes kind of way, but how can we do things differently? So I don't see it as dragging. I think the groundswell is there, and that's why I came to ANZ uh, in the first place. I had done a few projects at ANZ. I had known a few people and so on. But I knew about all the things that Off-Air spoke to you in one of your earlier episodes about how there was a real um, genuine grounded intention to do things differently, do things right and better than right, uh, informed by things like design. And um, and I love it. What do, you, what do you like about it? I mean, it's... it's I, 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 I still have this picture of people who are really good with numbers and analytical financial people, and you're the, you're the one dealing with software issues, real human beings and so on, and you say, I love it, I love it. What is it you like? Well... Um, one of the things that Off-Air spoke to you about earlier was the idea of having a hybrid model. So there is a design community of 160-something people at ANZ uh, at this moment in time, yeah, and, and it, yeah, there's always new things happening. But um, it, it's – so there's a community of designers and people for whom I have a lot of respect because um, – of the quality of what they do and the kind of people they are. So we had that design community, but as Offair said to you, uh, with exception of a small enterprise team, the rest of us are embedded within the business. So I and my team sit within banker experience. Now, there are people with a banking background there. There's an awful lot of um, people who build things, you know, coders, engineers. Um, and there are people from other backgrounds like, you know, change management or um, written communication, you know, content design and so on. And what I love about what I do and what I love about what I do in that context at ANZ is that ultimately I think the work I do, I characterise it best as human-centred problem solving. And that's what we're doing. And where the human is, um, 
you know, the customers and the bankers and whoever else might be involved in a particular situation. But the other part that I love about what I do is that it is very strongly centered on the idea of collaboration. Now, collaboration is not consensus. It doesn't mean that everybody, um, you know, has to agree, yes, the screen should be like this, or we're going to do this thing over here. It is about understanding the expertise of people around the table. Uh, I've been doing this long enough that I can say I, I have expertise in in um, interaction design and user experience without blushing too much. Um, but there are people there who have skills that I don't begin to have. I'm not a technical person. So I will always listen. I might challenge, but I will always listen to the developer about performance or um, um, you know, loading times or something else uh, or the difficulty of building a particular design. I will listen to the business people. I, I've had experience over the years in working on business problems, but I'm not a business person, but I expect the same thing back. And the fact that we're in the same space and we form a team, and I know that these people as people, which is partly the model and partly, I guess, my own personal style, but when, when it works best, it becomes people who um, know and trust each other and have a, a shared problem and a shared understanding of the problem that they're trying to solve. And I love that. Um, if I sat in Ivory Tower, and for many, many years, I have been an external consultant and I have been self-employed, you know, a, a company of one, uh, until about two years ago, I was for a decade. And some of the things that I really missed that pushed me to changing my working situation was that I didn't have collegiality. I would kind of ride into town as the expert consultant on the big white horse, solve the problems of the villagers, and then ride off into the sunset as they all, you know, cheer and applaud and, you know, say, who was that masked man kind of thing. Although masked man this year might mean something different. But um, it, it, I've, it, heard, I've heard the same story expressed as seagulls who come in and circle oh, around. Yes, yes, But so I, I, I love the fact that I am in a team with longevity that is working to solve immediate problems and then longer term problems. Um, Greg, I, I, uh, I, that's all uh, so great. I'm really interested, you know, because you're sort of embedded and you've come from this external uh, you know, 10 years as a consultant then you're now you're embedded, but also like sort of taking a step back and, and because of your experience uh, and process in your podcast about, you know, which is all about watching, um, sort of reminds me of Peter Sellers in being there. I like to watch. Um, he says, yep. you know, Chauncey Gardner, yep. can, yeah, so um, can you like if you were if we were to say to you, you know, the movie of design in ANZ, you know, or something like that, you know, how, how would you describe it? You know, if it was a, you know, it was a film or, you know, the, the story as it's evolving uh, from that perspective of a of a watcher, although you're embedded. But, you know, I think you have the ability to step back and see it as well. <sighs> you know. I don't know that I haven't answered that question. I'm sorry. Um, we actually ran that exercise in a meeting of our uh, people leaders only a fortnight ago uh, because Chris had run that exercise in another context that I was at. And we ran that um, and we had some really interesting answers. This is not designers. This is like across different roles and functions. Um, and uh, I don't actually have it in front of me, but uh, one of the ones I remember was, you know, the Avengers and the <laughs> The, the Avengers, um, you know, the, the team that has to come together and form and then it you know, takes on and solves, you know, massive problems. Uh, we don't necessarily, you know, fix alien invasions, but, you know, that's the kind of theme. Um, but and this is each member of the team having their special skills. That's the thing about the Avengers. They yeah, all have their yeah. own skills. Yeah. But um, I, I guess I would tell you what film it's not. Um, the film it's not 
is Being John Malkovich. So for those who know the film, and maybe for those who don't, you know, Being John Malkovich is a very clever, very funny, very imaginative film where um, uh, different people are going inside John Malkovich's head and kind of taking over his body. Uh, and eventually John Malkovich follows that same path. And you, you're going to this build-up of where, um, well, what happens when John Malkovich goes inside his own head? And he goes into a world where everybody is John Malkovich. And if you've seen the film posters, it's the sea of John Malkovich faces. It's a very, very clever film. <laughs> um, you should have explained, because I, I haven't seen the movie, but I know the actor that plays John Malkovich is, of course, John Malkovich. We, prob- really we, we probably should point that out, <laughs> yes. So, so um, what we're not is that world where everyone is exactly the same, you know, different bodies, but the same head, the same face, the same, you know, thoughts, whatever it might be. It is very much about, um, and as I say, my style is very much about people. So it's about getting to know people where they're at on the design journey. I'm now talking about non-designers particularly, but where they're or even my team who you know, I manage, but I also mentor and coach, where they are on that journey and working out, well, how do we take the next step? Um, the other thing is that um, when I talked earlier about what's creativity, I said my concepts of um, experience of creativity is very much around things like storytelling and looking at things differently. It's also very much about being playful. And that's, you know, as I've got older and I think about, you know, where I've come from, my family culture is very playful and, you know, very witty wordplay, dumb dad joke kind of stuff and stories where they're family stories or because we're Catholic, you know, stories about nuns and priests and whatever else. And I certainly um, both naturally and to a point deliberately bring playfulness in how I do things. And I think it's important, um, and it can be things, you know, as simple as, you know, dumb dad jokes, or it can be, well, okay, you know, how are we going to approach this meeting or how are we going to approach this design? Because um, I think when you're playful people rather than terribly serious and all those stereotypes that you would have in your head about what a bank is like, um, I think you more encounter the real person rather than, you know, some kind of straight-jacketed understanding. But I also think, and I would expect you guys will be totally on board with this, is that when you are playful and creative, you open up the space to things about differently, to think about things differently. So it's not that, um, you know, well, we're going to roll out another system that does oh, loans management or something, you know, or, or let's think about customer-facing stuff. We're not going to roll out another website that's going to tell you about a credit card and get you to sign up or whatever it might be. Um, we're going to, um, you know, open up the design space. And one of the best ways, or I think there are two ways, one is to be, open, think about things differently, be a bit playful to open up your thinking about it. And the other one, which we haven't talked about is, and that's very much where I come from, is based on research of the true context of use for a system or an experience. So a lot of my background, um, particularly from ergonomics, but also since then in things like software usability and user experience, the model is very much, um, you know, what used to be called user-centered design, now is often called human-centered design, where you put the people who will use this system or, you know, undertake this experience or journey at the heart of the design problem. So it's not just we're going to think very seriously about Chris and Paul who uses the system. We're going to involve them in certain ways. So I might go out to Chris's house and we're talking about 
um, how he's going to migrate from one email system to the other. Show me how you use your email. I want to get a bit of a sense about how techno savvy you are or are not. Um, I want to know where it happens, what what works well for you, what frustrates you. And then later on, we might bring Paul in, you know, a, a different um, customer or user into the design process by having developed some design concepts very early, hand-drawn kind of mock-ups on paper and so on, mm. and take Paul through that against the story of use rather than saying, ta-da, here's some screens, what do you yeah. reckon? You know, that kind of theatre approach to a more real-life kind of approach where Paul comes into that and helps us understand, are we on the right path or not? Great. I'd, l- I'd love to hear more about this playfulness idea because it's something I, I believe very passionately and I completely agree with you when you're playful with an idea it, it opens up new possibilities it allows people to learn in a way that they wouldn't otherwise learn yep. but it's not a word that sits very easily in the world of business and I, and I just wonder how if you've got any tips on how you can be playful or use playfulness in in an organization which perhaps would run away from this concept like that because it's for kids after all or it's trivial we can't have that stuff around or as I, as I experienced in a different financial institution about oh, 15 years ago um it's kindergarten stuff and we're not going to do kindergarten stuff in front of our employees and not in front of our customers yeah it was serious stuff and um i i, I guess um my advice would be don't just be playful so i love being playful i like being silly um but there's always, not always, there's often a serious intent behind it as well. So I um, I think it's important to be grounded and focused in what you're trying to achieve. Um, I don't have a lot of um, empathy for approaches that go in to be creative or do some research for its own sake. I'm always thinking about where we're trying to get to, what's the problem we're trying to solve, what's the value we're trying to deliver here. Um so I'm a, a very strong, passionate believer in the importance of doing research with the, the real people that I mentioned just before. Um, but, and, you know, but once you've got the runs on the board, because you've delivered something and people can see the value of it, then I think they're more prepared to go with you on that journey. And then it becomes about you know, how you self-manage that and, and hopefully not being too silly too often in the wrong direction. Uh, no, that's that's a bad What's that? Uh, we've got this concept. It's called purposeful play. Maybe that's how business could incorporate. It's uh, not just I'll, play. I'll just, I'll just trademark it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I've already got the, the website. <laughs> Greg, Greg, my, my experience is, um, is one of, you know, and I, I'm also, you know, along with this concept of play, and I've used it very successful in my past, when I, particularly when I had a block in my painting, and a very good friend of mine said, just go to studio play. I made a mistake because what I did was after I played, then I showed all my paintings. And so there was no real curation. So I think it's, you know, it's, I suppose it's for people to know that, okay, you know, what we come up with might not, you know, this is just part of the process, not necessarily the end result, because, um, you know, that silliness might bring something, you know, very powerful, but maybe not necessarily the silliness itself or the playful outcome. Um, And I think that's where some people get mixed up and you see certain, I think there's certain, uh, ad campaigns where go yeah you didn't review that <laughs> you, you didn't think about that you know that was uh, well, uh, another uh, core value for me is empathy so certainly we develop empathy for the people that we're designing for through the research and so on i've been speaking about but it's also empathy for the people around me so i uh often uh seek to understand a little bit about the people around me, whether it's you know, their home lives or often it's films that they enjoy to encounter the real person 
um, so that we can, you know, play together rather than, oh, that's this weird guy, Greg, who came in, blah, blah, blah. I, I, it's taken me a long time to get um, comfortable with being, you know, thought of as being a creative or designer because it wasn't my natural background. But I think the strength that I bring to things like that is that idea of, you know, people and, but with a focus, you know, on what we're trying to achieve. Does that mean our movies, our movies are way of understanding people. I mean, researchers have this classic classic question problem, which is to understand what makes people tick and, and how they see the world. And, and you can ask them directly, you know, how would you describe yourself as a person or what's important to you in life and so on. And typically people give answers that they think the researcher wants to hear. I'm wondering if movies is a really useful way into what people are like. You know, what, what kind of movies do you watch? What, what do you enjoy about them and so on? And in answering that question, they're revealing a lot about themselves that can help help you understand how to play with them, how to meet their needs and so on. So is movies a, a vehicle for understanding people, do you think? Well, I don't know I would limit it to movies. I would say stories. It might be it might be a movie, it might be a book, it might be a story from their lives or my own. You know, stories are primal. You know, they're innate back to, you know, the days of probably of um, cave people sitting around the fire you know, communicating oral traditions. You know, the Greek myths and legends, Chris, you and I were speaking about last week, for example, um, about how those stories, you know, they're stories and they're enjoyable and there's, you know, tales of daring do at the Battle of Troy or Hercules' 12 tasks. But there's also meaning in those stories that either explains how the world works or what people are like that explain jealousy and heroism and pride going before the fall and so on. So um, I think stories are a way for ourselves to understand the world, but also to engage with others, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we've spoken extensively about that, and I agree with you, they're primal. They're, they're the kind of glue that bonds human beings together. We don't tend to communicate well except with our stories. Well, well, just for Paul's benefit, and, and of course your podcast audience, the the conversation Chris and I were having last week was uh, saying that there are these books by uh, an American psychotherapist who's called Jean Shinoda Belson, who writes her two most famous books are called Goddesses in Every Woman and then Gods in Every Man. And they take the stories of the gods and goddesses and use them as ways of exploring, you know, where you might be in terms of archetypes as, as a, um, a vehicle for therapy. So her, her, her thesis is that these stories came about because they were ways of explaining the world and understanding the world and people. And so if you take someone like Aphrodite, you know, the strength of Aphrodite, the goddess of love and beauty, is sensuality, beauty, appreciation of, um, you know, Pleasure, pleasure. Yeah, things taste like and look like. Exactly, but the downside is that there, you know, you can have too strong a focus on that, and um, where you um, and don't necessarily go to the deeper parts of people and nature and so on. And in her book about gods and men, it's very much divided into the gods who are fathers versus sons. And their and you know the strengths and weaknesses of those. So you know Zeus, you know the, the king of the gods, is your classic patriarch. And you know uh, on the positive side of the coin is about you know nurturing, steering, making sure the world kind of works. But the downside can be you know domineering towards the children and oppressive and or, or not really engaging that real person. That's more something to be managed. So it helps it helps people understand themselves. Yeah, I, I should hasten to add, I don't talk a lot about what people are in terms of gods and goddesses in the workplace, but I have to say, sometimes, sometimes I see someone, I go, yeah, that's Artemis. 
<laughs> I suppose the great advantage is it, it highlights that everyone has their own strengths and in built into those strengths are, are flaws. And yeah. it, it says that we're all like that. There's nobody that's perfect. There's nobody that's imperfect. We've all got this strange I, mix. We have to including navigate. myself, yeah. Yes. No, no, not you, Greg. You're... you're... <laughs> Uh, Greg, I think it's a, a perfect segue uh, to probably to wrap wrap up. We're cognizant of your your time. Thank you so much for sharing with us your your experiences to bring to bring those uh, banking gods, you know, uh, closer <laughs> and more accessible to the uh, to, to the to the common man or, or the common creative. And look, I, I really really enjoyed your sort of unpacking of what you do and how it sits in within you know definitions of creativity. It's been. Uh, been really fascinating and i i love that uh experience of you know the the practical application of your type of creativity not artistry but your type of creativity and in, in how it helps uh, so many other people um so it's been uh, absolutely wonderful yeah thank you Greg. I'd, like to, I'd like to echo that i feel like i've learned about empathy i've learned about play and uh, underpinning by research is there's a solid foundation to all this stuff and I think that the, the thing it all wraps up as is stories and how they help us understand people and how they define who we are as people. I, I've really enjoyed chatting to you, Greg. Thank you very much indeed. Well, um, thank you for having me, guys. I've enjoyed the conversation as well. I'm glad I had something to contribute. Um, but, uh, you know, it's, it's a really interesting topic. And even preparing for this conversation has made me stop and reflect on, you know, where have I come from? What do I think about this? And um, so even before we started the conversation, I found it's a very valuable exercise. So thank you. Thank you. And if, if you're listening into the podcast, uh, please give us a rating. Please type your comments uh, below. We'd love to get your feedback. And, of course, tune in for the next, next podcast, uh, which we'll be announcing in the near future.